0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. This Wednesday night, we're going to do a run-through of what we're going to do this fall. So this Wednesday night, now listen, dinner's going to be free, but you've got to call by the end of the day or tomorrow morning sometime, and let us know you're going to be here. You just can't walk up and get a meal. Uh, So just let us know, and we're glad to feed you. And there are going to be all kind of activities. Bring the kids, uh, bring aunts and uncles, bring grandma and granddad, bring everybody, and be here Wednesday night, this Wednesday night. And I'm going to kind of wrap us all up, I think, with about a 10-minute devotional. So it's worth coming to see, can I do something actually in 10 minutes? So uh, we look forward to that. And if you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I'm in a series that I call The Fruit of Revival. You know it best as The Fruit of the Spirit. It's in Galatians chapter 5. And uh, Paul is giving us these nine fruit of the Spirit. Um, It's singular. It's not plural in the text. So that's why I say The Fruit of the Spirit. Nine of these that he says should be evident in the life of every believer And we're going to look at that. When I was in Dallas, um, one of my neighbors, one of my church neighbors happened to be um, Tony Evans, a good friend. And uh, I heard Tony tell a story that I'm going to tell you. I had Tony Evans was right there in Oak Cliff, and I was right across the Trinity River in downtown at First Baptist Dallas. And to the north was uh, Jack Graham, and to the north of him was Chuck Swindoll. I was surrounded by all of these incredible preachers And um, I heard Tony Evans tell the story. He was talking about how there was a crack in his bedroom wall. And he said the thing just got worse, and it bothered him until he called a a painter. The guy came over, and he said, listen, I got a crack in my wall back here. And he said, I need for you to fix it. And the guy went in, and he chiseled out all of the plaster, and he replastered, and he painted. And he said it was great for 45 days, but at the end of 45 days, he said the crack came back. He said he was just so irritated at the cost, the expense, all the trouble of, you know, having to move everything in the bedroom. And he said he called him up and said, look, man, this crack is back. You've got to come and do something about this. So the guy came back, you know, chiseled out the plaster again, replastered the thing, painted it again. He said, I think it'll, it'll, this will do good. This, you'll be fine. He said it was good for 30 days. And he said this time the crack came back and brought all these other cracks with it. And he said, I I just thought to myself, I've got to get somebody that's an expert. So he went, he got the name of of a guy that's going to be really super expensive, but he was an expert, well-known, came with great, you know, uh, recommendations. So he called the guy to his house. He said the guy came in the bedroom and he looked at the crack and said he just stood there, didn't say a word, just stood there and he looked at the crack and he thought, "What, what is this guy thinking? Got a crack in my wall, I need fixed. And he said, the guy just looked at it, stared at it and said, finally moved. Said he walked over to one side and he looked at it from this angle and he walked back over to the other side and he looked at it from that, that angle and he said, preacher, let me tell you, um, I can't help you. He said, well, what do you mean you can't help me? He said, I can't help you. He said, there's nothing I can do here. He said, I've got a crack in my wall. I need for you to chisel out the plaster, put some replaster, you know, replaster the thing, paint the thing, fix it, do it this time right, I've had it done twice before, he said, You don't need me. He said, What do you mean I don't need you? I need, a, I need a painter. I need somebody that can work with this plaster. He said, No. He said, That crack is not coming because of the plaster. He says, Your foundation is shifting. And he says, your foundation is shifting. And he said, all that I'm going to do is I'll repair that cosmetically, but it will not take care of the real issue. You've got to get somebody that can come and work on the foundation. The foundation is the issue. All you'll do is spend money patching that up and painting it and cosmetically for a short period of time taking care of it. That's exactly what we're doing in the church in America today. Amen. That's exactly what is happening. We've got cracks everywhere through our society. There are cracks in this culture. There are cracks politically. There are cracks theologically. There are are cracks in our denomination, if you've not been keeping up with it. There are cracks everywhere you turn. There are cracks in our lives. Maritally, there are cracks. Parentally, there are cracks. There, there, There are cracks everywhere, and we spend all of our time patching things up to cosmetically make everything look good. We never deal with the issue, and the issue is we've come off the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. So we go on, and we slap on a little plaster, and we slap on a little paint, and we think we've taken care of it, and everybody's going to look at us, and they're going to think, boy, they look really spiritual today, and they do not know we're off the foundation. We're off the reservation. (laughs) That's where the church in Galatia was. If you've got your Bible, Galatians chapter 6. Well, really go to Galatians chapter 1 because I want to show you again. I've done this before, but I want you to see it, how far off the foundation they had gotten. Uh, Paul is not five verses into this, and in verse 6 of chapter 1, he just says, I've got to confront you with the fact that you've gotten off the foundation. He comes in verse 6 of chapter 1, and he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. He said, you were saved by grace. And now you're wrapped up in a different gospel. You have really come off the foundation. You're now building your life on some other foundation. He comes over in chapter 3, and look at what he says there. He comes, and he just is playing now, Paul is right. These churches, if you went with us to Greece, uh, the churches of Revelation are to the west of these churches. These churches in Galatia are to the east of the churches in Revelation. Laodicea, um, uh, Sardis, Thyatira, those churches, these are to the east. They're in the middle part of uh, what is today Turkey to the south. These are the churches that Paul... Uh, founded when he started his mission ministry on the very first mission trip. And now they've got issues. They've come off their foundation. And so this pastor writes and he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? We've, We've got sorcery going on here. This is just weird stuff. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He said, I preach to you Jesus Christ crucified. That that was the means of salvation. That is the way of salvation. That is your forgiveness right there. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. I can just hear Paul. He's just talking to him now. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You came in the beginning and you said, yes, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself and I'm lost and I receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, but now you act like you're saving yourself. You've come to the place now where you've gotten off the foundation of Christ and you've come to the place where you act as if it's all your righteousness and your goodness and your ability and your talent and your giftedness that's saving you. And he says, it's obvious in the church it, you're a mess because all you do is attack each other. Chapter 5, verse 16, or, or verse uh, 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Those three words, bite, devour, consume, all come out of the animal kingdom. It's like these animals that, you know, you, you see it on, well, you see it on, was that the thing called wild world kingdom, wild world? or that wide world of sports. Well, you see it in that too. Um, You know, just these animals attacking each other, biting each other, tearing at one another. And Paul comes and he says, you keep doing that to one another and you're gonna be consumed. And what he meant by that was this, your witness will be eaten up. You'll have no more witness. Nobody in your community, nobody in your city, nobody in your area will wanna come to your church because all you do is pick and bite and uh, gnaw on one another. Who in the world wants that? I can get that in the world. I don't need to go to church to get it. And and so that's what he's saying. You'll just consume. You'll have no witness left. And so what's the issue? What's the answer here? Now, this is the problem that he's got. Look over at chapter 6. By the way, beginning in verse 16 through chapter 6, verse 5, that's one pericope. This is one whole section right here. He's going to come and he's going to tell them we got a problem with a brother in the church there and I don't know what to do. Now, he makes it sound innocuous when he comes and he says, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trap, he's got somebody that's caught in a sin. He's got somebody in the church in Galatia that's caught in a sin and he says, I don't know what to do with them. I'm not there. If this was written in 48 or 49, which I suspect it was, he's still in Antioch. If it's written in 55, he is writing this most likely from Ephesus. This probably has an earlier date on it. I think it is most likely the first letter that Paul ever wrote. Uh, So, he's writing this thing from Antioch, and he says, I'm so far, I can't get to you. It would take me, you know, land travel, sea travel, travel, to get to where you are. And he says, I've got a brother. There's a brother there who has been caught. Paralambano is the word. Now, the word conveys this concept of being surprised. Here's a man who did not go out on a Saturday night to commit sin, but ends up involved in sin. But he didn't set out to do it. In other words, this isn't the habit of his life. This isn't a pattern with him. This is a brother. This is a man who's been saved by Christ. He's a part of the fellowship there, but he is in sin. Did he intend? He did not intend. He didn't willfully walk into it, but he walks into it. What I want you to see is this. This isn't the pattern of the guy's life. He is a believer. He is a brother in Christ. And Paul comes and he says, what am I going to do with him? I can't get there to tend to him. So who am I going to turn to at a moment like this? Who do I turn to when I've got a person who is a brother or sister in Christ and they are in sin? And who do I turn him over to in the church? There were two groups at Galatia. You had the legalist and you had the secularist, the humanist, the hedonist, we would call them. So Paul says, I can't turn them over to the legalist. What's the legalist going to do? Tell them that they're going to go to hell. That's what the legalist is going to do. It's too bad you're not perfect like us, that you don't keep the law like we do. And the fact of the matter is, no grace for you, no hope for you, Um, you know, French fry is what's gonna happen. Just gonna French fry. That's it. You're gonna burn. Well, you don't wanna turn somebody over to somebody like that. Um, On the other hand, you don't wanna turn them over to the hedonist. The hedonist is gonna look at them in their sin and say, what's wrong? Hey, they're, they're, are you happy? Did it make you happy? Did you enjoy? It? Well, listen, God wants you happy. Just go and do whatever you want to do because God ultimately just wants you happy. Everybody's going to be saved in the end. Just go do whatever makes you feel good. Well, Lord knows I don't want to turn. I'd rather turn him over to the legalist than I had that thing, the hedonist on the other side. And so, Paul's asking the question, who do I turn this brother in Galatia over to who has walked into sin? He's grieving. He's hurting. He is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He is struggling with guilt. What do I do with this guy? He said, I don't have anyone but those who are the spiritual. Did you see that? You got your Bibles? Look, verse 1, chapter 6. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trust... Any, he, doesn't name the, he doesn't name the sin. He doesn't say this sin or this sin. It's any sin. And, and I'm thankful the Holy Spirit left it like that because you can right there put in whatever sin it is in your life. You're caught in any sin. Anyone who is caught, any brother, any sister that's caught in any sin, you who are spiritual. Now, who are the spiritual? Well, commentators have used reams of paper and barrels of ink to write about the spiritual. And they have argued and debated and gone on about it. But let me show you the immediate context of this verse. Uh, It's uh, beginning in chapter 5, verse 16. Look at this. Listen to what Paul says. Walk by the Spirit. Verse 18. Look at this. They're led by the Spirit. Verse 25, they live by the Spirit. So I come to an understanding that the spirituals are the ones who walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Well, now, how do I know who those are? Well, in the middle of all of this, Paul tells you they do not do the deeds of the flesh. Look at what he says in verse 19, chapter 5. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. You say, well, no, we don't do any of that, pastor. We're, we're not, I'm not into immorality or sensuality. I sure don't worship idols. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not a witch or a warlock here. All right, well, just, let's just look on, okay? Look at what he puts alongside of that. Enmity. Anybody here got some enmity with somebody else? Can I get a witness? Somebody want to testify, Strife, I just strive with whoever. There's jealousy, I'm just jealous of that couple. I'm just jealous of that person. Outbursts of anger, Lord have mercy. Just somebody just erupts in a fit of anger. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, all these kind of things, Paul says. The spirituals don't dabble in that. But he says what they do is they show evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness is what we're coming to today and we're going to talk about. And self-control next week, Lord willing, against these things. You can't find anybody who gets enough of this stuff. You can't find laws against kindness, goodness, faithfulness, patience, peace, love. You can't find laws against stuff like that. We don't try to stop people who are gentle. Would you please stop being so gentle? I'd like for you just to slap me around a little bit. Would you? You know, would you stop being so kind to me? It's kind of turning my stomach right now. We don't do that. We don't stop that. What do we do? We look for it. We long for it. We search for somebody who's kind, somebody who's gentle, somebody that's full of joy and full of peace and full of patience and full of goodness. We look for people like that. So Paul comes and he says this. I- I've got to do something with this brother that is in sin, but who am I going to turn him over to? And he says, I'm going to turn him over to the spiritual ones and watch it. what he says. Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. You be gentle with them. You be careful with them you show them the gentleness of your life. Now listen, I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to get to this later on, but I want you to understand that gentleness is never to be understood. By the way, Matthew chapter 5, it's the same word, same word, Matthew 5 that Jesus uses when he says, "Blessed are the meek." Meek, humble, gentle. Same thing. All comes from the same word. Jesus speaks of it. Paul here is speaking of it. We're to be gentle. There's to be a gentleness about us, a meekness about us. And I want you to understand, that is not an insipidness. Gentleness is not the same thing as being anemic, weak, pale, no backbone, none of that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's funny how our, how our language and our ideas uh, miss so much of what is in Scripture because we put our own interpretation on it. Well, there's somebody that's meek. In other words, they don't, they don't have any backbone. They're not going to stand up. They're not going to do anything. Well, I, I'm going to show you this in, in, in just a few moments. I want you to understand that is not what he's talking about. In fact, the fact of the matter is this. Um, gentleness takes strength. Spiritual maturity brings strength so that a believer can be gentle in spirit. Spiritual maturity brings strength so that we can be gentle with other people, even in tough situations where you are Prone to go Rambo, where you're prone just to go off. Now, I'm going to show you two things this morning. I want you to see this, and I think this is, this is so needful. We, we have a need for this in the church today. We don't know what real gentleness is all about. Um, you know, I know I talk about my dad all the time. My dad boxed Golden Gloves. He had the biggest hands any man I'd ever seen in my life. I only thought one time my dad was going to deck me. I was in the 11th grade, and I was, my wife's not here. Now, look, y'all don't have to go out of here and say everything. You know that? Do y'all know that? I was with a girl I had no business being with, and I thought my dad was going to knock me out that night. And uh, I, I was literally fearful of my dad. He had a 58 chest and a 38 waist. There was a guy that told... My mom went in to buy him a suit one time, and she said, I need something with a 58 chest and a 38 waist. He said, Lady, bring him in here. I want to see what that looks like. (laughs) He was huge. He He had such upper body strength and such huge hands. Well, listen, let me tell you, my daddy was the most gentle man you'd ever want to come across, but I never wanted him to punch me. I can promise you that. Well... Gentleness now. Look back at the text, and let's begin to look. Look at what he says. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, understand this. This gentleness enables us to have the strength to carry out the ministry of restoration. We're able to take on a ministry of rest, of restoring somebody who has fallen into sin. That's what Paul is saying right here. He said, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spirit restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. He says, you are the only ones that I've got, those that are spiritually mature, who can take this guy who's fallen into sin and restore him. Now, let me show you the word. Put your finger right there in Galatians chapter... Uh, Six And look with me back, all the way back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is out calling disciples. This is kind of fascinating. He is, uh, he's out calling disciples, and he's going to come up on Peter and Andrew, and they are in the midst of fishing, and Jesus says, listen, come on, follow me, and I'll teach you how to fish for men. Uh, And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, verse 20, chapter 4 of Matthew. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father. These guys were not fishing. Look at what it says. It says they were mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. That, that word right there in verse 21 of Matthew 4 is the same word that Paul is using over here in Galatians 6, 1, where here it's translated restore and over here in Matthew it's translated mending. Now they're out there with, now listen, the nets that they fish with are not these big old thick. They're fine little pieces of, of uh of twine, and they will break. Fish will run into them, and they will break. When they're hauling fish in, sometimes they will snap, and they're sitting there, and with these little small pieces of twine, They are mending. They're tying back up where they've come apart. They're tying back up where they've broken. They're putting a new piece of twine in where they need a new piece of twine. They're mending. They're restoring it. There is a putting it back together. Now, that became a medical term. And the medical term was this. It was a term that uh, a doctor would take someone who had a fractured bone and that doctor could take it and he would fit that fractured bone back together in such a way that it would become whole again. Now, that is restoration. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I need somebody who is able to come up next to somebody who has been caught in sin, somebody who's struggling in sin, and he says, what I need for them to do is the ministry of restoration. Help put them back together and do it with a gentleness. Now, what we don't need is we don't need a ministry of fix-it we do need ministries of restoration. We restore people. We don't fix people. And you said, when a preacher, what's the difference? Well, the only way I can explain the difference is tell you a story. When I was in Chesapeake, my first church out of seminary, I was in Chesapeake, Virginia, and uh, on Friday nights, Deb and I would go down to the ball games and watch the youth, watch all the kids who, you know, the girls cheer and the guys played football. And so we would go down and watch the guys. And I had one guy that was going to go to, he was going to go to college. He was going to be drafted. And he was going to be drafted because he was just huge. You just plug a hole up with him. He was just huge. He was huge. And his dad was twice the size he was. And so that night, this boy gets hit and something happens to his leg. Now, this has been, you know, 30 years ago or, or so. Well, they take, they take the boy down. I can't even remember his name. I remember his mom and dad, Butch and Ginger. They, they take the boy down to the hospital. So Deb and I hop in the car. We follow down. We get to the uh, ER, and we go in the ER, and uh, the boy is laid out. He's in so much pain. They've already given him a pain shot, and he's out. And uh, Ginger and Butch are standing there. But Now, he was a Butch, too. He was just a big old boy, huge and um, they had the x-ray up and they, you know, the doctor's showing, here's, well, here's a problem here. And I don't exactly remember what, what it is. And they're looking at him and I can remember Butch saying, well, we're going to have to take him to, you're going to have to take him to surgery. Listen, he, he's, listen, I just want you to know, man, he's up for scholarship to play football in college. You're going to have to take him into surgery. What's this going to do? What's going to be? And the doctor looked at him and he said this. He said, well, let me try something first. Well, he's knocked out. Who cares? The boy, the kid's knocked out. Give it a shot. Let's see what'll happen. Maybe it'll spare him from going into surgery. He said, let me see if I can fix this. And so he told the dad, and this, I'm telling you, this man was big. The boy was big. The dad was bigger. He told me, he said, you go over there on that side and you lay across his chest. And then he told me, he said, you go over to the other side. To Me, skinny me, you go over to the other side and you lay across him from the other side. And he said, I'm going to see if we can get by with doing this. I don't know. He said, we'll see. Maybe I can fix it. And he goes down to the boy's leg, and he takes the boy's leg, and he just yanks it. He goes and takes the neck. Well, the boy came up off the table. That's the story. He came up off the table, threw that big old daddy of his off, threw his little petite pastor off, and um, fell back on the cushion and went back to sleep. I mean, he just came to just for that moment and was back out. Well, they x-rayed again, and he comes back out, and he says, I'm sorry. He said, I thought maybe I could fix it. (laughs) He said, but we're going to have to take him into surgery. And and he says, we're going to have to repair it. There's got to be the ministry of restoration. We don't need to be trying to fix people, mainly because they don't need the additional trauma of you trying to fix them what they need is they need the ministry of restoration, someone who will come beside them with the word of God and walk with them and love on them and care for them. They don't need to be voted out in a business meeting. Now, sometimes that might take that. They don't need to be brought up and just dressed down somewhere. They need somebody who is spiritual enough to walk beside them and do the ministry of restoration. And you say, how do we do that with this right here? It's not left up to you. When people come in to see me and they've got some kind of issue, well, let's just look. Just take the list that Paul gives us. That's a pretty safe thing to do. There's some immorality there, some impurity there, some sensuality. I don't run and go get Psychology 101 and come back in there and give them a little bit of Freud or Skinner or some of these other guys. Give them this. You got somebody that comes in and there's some sorcery going on. I've had that. Some idolatry going on. Some strife, some jealousy. I don't run and get a sociology book 202. I come and I give them this. I don't have but one book, and it's this book right here. And it's this book that will do the ministry of restoration if you will take it and with love and gentleness walk somebody through it. Now, let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this back, Galatians chapter 6, and that is that gentleness now gives you the strength not just to carry out the ministry of restoration, but it gives you the strength to finish the ministry of restoration. Now, just watch at what's going on uh, in this passage. Listen to Paul right here. The the tragic thing is this, so many Christians never have the strength to get up off their blessed assurance and get involved in anything, much less finish something. So he's calling us, come, get involved. Look at what he says, I need for you to come, verse 2, bear one another's burdens, And thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ is this. Here's the law of Christ. You read this several times in the New Testament. I think James mentions this, the law of Christ. Here, Paul mentions this. The law of Christ is this, love one another. When I bear my brother's burdens, I am fulfilling the law of Christ. In other words, I'm loving my brother in Christ. He comes and he says, bear one another's burdens. The word there for bear is the word baros, bear, lift, carry, pick up. But it has this concept of endure. I bear it, I pick it up, I carry it, I lift it. I'm going to help you. And he, the word for uh, The word for the burden there, or or bear there, the word for bear means you, you carry it. The burden is an excessive burden, a huge burden, a massive burden, a burden that is so big that one person just can't carry it himself or herself. You ever had a burden like that? I mean, a trunk size burden, one that's so big? Paul talks about that. In fact, if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about this very thing, the burden that they were under. Chapter 1, 2 Corinthians verse 8, for we do not want you to be uh, uh, unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened, there it is, excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired of life. We've got a burden so big. I've got a conviction so big. I've got guilt so big. I don't think I'm going to be able to live. When somebody's been caught in some kind of sin and they've got enough Jesus in them to bring conviction on their heart and they're struggling through guilt, listen, they want to know is somebody going to help me? I've got a burden too big for me to bear. So Paul comes and he says, listen, you bear it. You pick it up. I've just got to give you this. Back in John chapter 19, verse 17, they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, bearing his own cross. It's the same word right there that Paul is using over here. Now, whose cross was Jesus bearing? It says his own, but it wasn't really his cross. It was my cross. It was your cross. You said, but he didn't take it all the way to Calvary. Simon picked it up. Listen, he carried out the entire mission. He carried it through. He died. They crucified him. Here Jesus was bearing my cross, bearing your cross, and he did it all the way to the end. It was too heavy for me to endure, for me to carry, but here he comes and he carries it where? All the way to the end. He doesn't give up midway. He doesn't stop midstream. He doesn't come to the place where he says, this is too much for me. He goes all the way. He allows them to nail him to the cross. The same one that spoke and worlds jumped into being could have spoken and sent them into orbit. And yet he prays for them and he goes through that painful death for me and for you. He finished the mission. He completed That ministry of restoration, what did he do? He restored us spiritually. He reconciled us to God. Listen, let me tell you something. The ministry of reconciliation must be preceded by the ministry of restoration. You cannot be reconciled to somebody until you're restored. And so Jesus comes and he dies for us. And he does it all the way to the end. Now, the Greco-Roman world, listen. To them, gentleness was not a virtue. It was not something that was seen as desirable. In fact, they hated it. They did not want, do not, whatever you do, do not call me gentle. Do not call me meek. And yet it's out of the Greco-Roman world. The Word comes to us, and the Word describes a powerful horse whose power is brought under control. Did y'all see the movie Seabiscuit? Um, I, I watched it coming back from Israel, I think. I was on the plane, and I watched it, and I got so caught up in the movie. And uh, just fascinated, Sea Biscuit was the most untrainable horse in the world. I mean, nobody could do anything with him. Uh, owners, uh, horse handlers, trainers—nobody could do anything with this horse. It was just a horse that was out of control. It had over ate. Uh, it would eat too much. It would run wild. You could not get it. You know, you you couldn't. You could hardly get a saddle on him. When you got a saddle on him and you got him, he just run wild. He wouldn't follow any kind of direction. He would haul, uh, paw. he would kick, he took his head and he would bang his head against the stable wall. People gave up on him. People knew about him. He had been in a couple of races, but he was just so wild. That was, it was the wild horse that no one could do anything with except there was a guy that stepped forward by the name of Tom Smith who said, I'll take him on. Tom Smith took Sea Biscuit. That's why you know the name Seabiscuit today. That's why it rings familiar to you. Is because this guy, Tom Smith, took him and he gentled that horse into becoming gentle. He trained that horse. He worked with that horse uh, to the point to where people began to see the difference in the horse, and they wondered, could he race, and could he win a race? And they got into this argument with the owners of um, War Admiral, who was the most famous horse in the world at the time. He'd won the triple crown. He was considered to be the greatest horse of all time. And so they began debating, well, what if War Admiral and Seabiscuit would race? Would Seabiscuit race him? Or would he just run off wild? Would he just go crazy? Could he, because they could see the potential in him, and so they came down on November the 1st, 1938, that they were gonna race just two horses. It was a stand-up race which would benefit War Admiral because at the sound of a bail, War Admiral would jump, usually into the lead. Sea biscuit wouldn't even respond to a bail would never follow the direction of a jockey and would ignore a bell. And and if he decided to run, he would just stalk other horses. He'd get in behind him and just stalk them. Tom Smith worked with him, gentled him, cared for him, taught him, poured into him day after day after day until they came down to November the 1st, 1938. Most of America closed up. Do y'all know that, that day? They shut down. I don't know how long a track is. He was up, they were up at Baltimore at Pimlico um, uh, race, race course up there, which is where Kirkwood has been the last week or so. He's been up there, but I'm gonna ask him if he went to that horse track. Um, he, he, up there at Pimlico, and so they were gonna race him there in Baltimore, and um, they bring the horses out. Now, this would favor War Admiral because he would jump at a bale, Seabiscuit would not. All of the country closes up. Franklin Roosevelt was in a cabinet meeting, called the cabinet meeting to a halt, turned on the radio to listen to the race. That's where the country was on this. And so everybody's listening, and all of a sudden the bail goes off, and lo and behold, Seabiscuit jumps to the lead. He did what he'd never done before. He jumps out to the lead. And he pulls out ahead of war admiral, but then all of a sudden, war admiral just catches up with him. And for one mile, nose to nose, head to head, you know, ear to ear, here they are right alongside each other. Here they go for a solid mile. Now, I don't know how long a track, was it, a mile and a quarter, mile and a half, something, anybody know? If you answer, I want to know why you know. Well, whatever, whatever it is, it's a good thing. Thank you, Lord, that nobody in this church knows anything about it. Uh, so, whatever, let's just say a mile and a half. I don't know what it is. They get to the mile mark, and Seabiscuit's jockey just hollers. And when he does, Seabiscuit just jumps out and beats War Admiral by four horse lengths. That was power under control. Never did it before. Became known as the horse of the year, 1938. All this incredible power of this horse brought down under the control of a single master. And he did everything right. That is the picture of the word gentleness in the Greek. All this power, all this knowledge, all of this ability brought under the control of a master. And in doing that, <laughs> he not only started the race, he finished it. You ever finish what you start? God has a ministry for every one of us here, folks. Let me, let me just tell you, If you're here, you say, well, I don't have that gift. We're not talking about gifts. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. So you can't beg off of this by saying, I don't have that gift. All of us are to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. There's a great need in the house of God for the ministry of restoration. Walking beside people who are struggling because of sin. Now, I want to close with two things I want you to see. Just listen to these things that Paul cautions. If you're here and you're spiritual, you're displaying the fruit of the Spirit, there's a caution that is given. There's a caution here about conceitedness. Look at verse 3. If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let me tell you that in ministry, we like to say, about fellow preachers. They can strut sitting down. There's a conceitedness in ministry that is so prevalent. And that's exactly what he's saying right here. Here you are and you're speaking and you're leading and you're giving advice and you're giving people the word and you are instructing them in things. He says you better be sure You don't get conceited doing it because the fact of the matter is this, you're nothing to begin with. Then he comes and he gives clarity on another issue in the church. Conceitedness is one, but number two, comparisons. A clarity about comparisons, but each one must examine his own work. That's what he's saying in verse 5, by the way. I don't have time to get to that. Don't think that he's talking about your burden. Well, I don't have to worry about that. I've got to bear my own burden. No, the word is not burden there. The word is load. Very different word. He is saying basically this. He's saying stop comparing yourself to everybody else. Stop comparing yourself to this Christian or that Christian. Stop comparing yourself to this person who's fallen into sin or that person who's fallen into sin. He says, don't go around saying, well, at least I didn't do that. You know, well, hey, you don't catch me doing this. You don't catch me doing that. You don't catch me doing something over here. He says, you don't need to have comparisons because there's coming a day when you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you want that comparison made? Because Paul tells us in Romans this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The only comparison that's going to be in that day is God's glory. Now, how do, you, how do you add up? How do you compare to God's glory? Now, there's your comparison right there. Stop all of this comparing yourself to others. And you say, how do I do that? Look to Jesus Keep your focus on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Word. Don't shift off the foundation. Be sure that you're solid on the foundation. And if you are, there's not going to be this conceitedness, and there's not going to be these comparisons going on in your life. Have you ever noticed how an infant will watch its mother's face? I've noticed with the, with the grandkids, I, I noticed it with our kids, but that's been so long ago. I, I noticed it with the grandkids. You, I'd go into the, after the babies would get here, I'd go in the room and one of the girls would be holding their newborn baby and that baby's just staring, staring, staring at the mother's face. And I go over and I'll speak to it and I'm making get that baby to look at me, but he goes right back to the face. I said, well, what's, what's wrong? Does, you know, that's well, he wants to look at his mother. He focuses on the, they say that the mother's face is a mirror for self-identity for a baby. Now listen to this. I don't know who does these studies, but they say that within 42 minutes of a baby being born, it already can identify its mother's different facial expressions. I don't know how they know that. I guess they ask the baby. I don't know. Uh, I I don't know how they do that. But but, But what they say is this, is that that baby in 42 minutes has already learned the mother at peace, the mother who is happy, the mother who is joyful, the mother when she gets frightened, the mother when she gets concerned, that they're able to, within 42 minutes, identify the different facial expressions of the mother. Now, I say that to say this turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and all the comparisons and all the conceitedness and all the sin and all the lure of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's stand. I honestly believe that God's calling on some of you to step into a ministry of restoration. You're mature enough. You're spiritual enough to where you can with gentleness handle a brother or a sister who's taken a fall. We need that. We need that in this church. We need it in the church today. Others of you need to work on growing in spiritual maturity. Because God wants to use you. There's a place of service for you. There's so many that are in the family of God that are hurting That are struggling, that need desperately for someone to walk with them, to put their arm around them. Do you remember what Paul says to the church in Corinth? He says, do you want me to come to you with a rod or do you want me to come to you with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, we don't need to beat people up. We don't need to pound on them. We need to love them. We need to put our arm around them. And we need with the Word of God to try our best to help restore them so that they walk with the Spirit and that they're led by the Spirit and that they're living in the Spirit. You're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ. Let me me tell you something. Our desire is to love you, not to make a spectacle of you, not to lorate you, not to beat on you with God's word, but to walk with you, to help you grow in the things of God. That's our heart. That's our desire as a church. Never to see you suffer but to see you grow in the things of God. This morning, if God's speaking to your heart as only God can, listen, come to me. Come this morning and say, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. And let me put you in the body of Christ here and with someone who will love you and walk with you and care for you. Father, in these moments, as you're doing what only you can do, and that is speaking to our hearts. I pray, Lord, for those this morning that desperately need to know you as Lord and Savior and need to come and surrender their life and their future and their eternity to you. But I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, who've been in the church for 20 or 30 years, and they've never picked up a ministry, And yet, Lord, you're speaking to them this morning because they know someone that's struggling with sin. And you want to carry out the ministry of restoration through them. Father, help us to be more interested in restoring our brothers and sisters than in pushing them away. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Would you come? right now as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.